Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes are Bicep to talk about how they wrote, recorded and produced the album Isles. Bicep are an electronic music production duo featuring the talents of Andy Ferguson and Matt McBriar. Growing up in Belfast, the pair were childhood friends and bonded over their shared love of dance music. In 2008, having regularly sent each other dance cuts and lost classics, they formed Feel My Bicep, a blog showcasing an eclectic mix of their favorite synth, house and Italo disco rarities. Quickly becoming the go-to place for dance music aficionados, the runaway success of the blog eventually saw them become highly sought-after DJs, with their sets reflecting the diversity of their online curations. Initially playing separately across Europe and Asia, the pair reunited in London and quickly found success with their 2010 12-inch Darwin, released on Throne of Blood. The track topped the online retail charts and became music site Accelerator's most downloaded track of 2010. Going on to sign to Ninja Tune, Bicep released their self-titled debut album in 2017, featuring the iconic Ravira-inspired track Glue. The album reached the top 20 in the UK album charts and kick-started a sell-out tour across the UK, Europe and North America. Having embraced the global influences of their tour and time living in the cultural mixing pot of London, in 2019 they began work on their second album, Isles. Released in January 2021, the moodier, more introspective album reached number two on the UK album charts and sees the duo distill their sound to its purest essence, digging deep into the experiences and emotions that have influenced their lives and work. Today, once again due to the COVID lockdown, I'm at home in Morden, South London, and Matt and Andy join us from their studio in Shoreditch in East London. And what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record? This is Casano. is Casanova by Bicep from the new album Isles, the second Bicep album. And I'm very pleased to say that Bicep are our guests on this edition of Tape Notes. Matt McBriar and Andy Ferguson are connected to me. Hello. Hey, how you doing, man? Very well, thank you. How are you and where are you? Um, we're doing very well um, in uh, our studio in London. Right. And uh, because of the, the technological setup, I can't actually see you. Often I can with these remote sessions, but I can't today. But I did get a slight glimpse into the studio. So it's a basement studio. It's yeah. dark yeah. and gloomy and moody. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not through choice, not through choice, but it's just through choice. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the only property in London, no uh, windows. Yeah, our um, our old studio actually had an amazing window that looked out over the street on the third floor, but uh, gentrification took over, so we're now in the bit down in the basement now. <laughs> right, and is this the studio that the new album was recorded in? Yeah, yeah. And in terms of recording, how long did it take to put Isles together? Well, we started it when we got off tour in 2019 in January. We finished in Australia and we'd been touring that album for two years and we pretty much started straight away actually um, and all of 2019 was busy spent on the album. We didn't tour very much and we did a couple of DJ shows but generally it was all um, yeah written in 2019. A lot of focus then and a lot of concentration and the intriguing thing about Bicep is, is trying to work out how you create your music because it seems so self-contained. It's a world of its own. Um, which is one of the reasons why it's so exciting to listen to it because you can't quite work out how you do it or what you do. So how do you go about creating your music? I mean, the sitting down to piano is the main beginning of everything. We've been through so many kind of failed attempts when we sort of just came in and jammed on a load of drum machines and then tried to add some pads on top and, you know, just pieced together bit by bit. And we find it more often than not, it kind of ended being stuck after, you know, a few weeks of working on something. So we've kind of... Certainly for this one on the la- and quite a few tracks in the last album, we really sit down with the piano first and try and work out the kind of core DNA of the track of the core chords and really understand what we kind of want to say with the music first. Mm-hmm. And it, it needs to communicate on its most simple level through just a piano, not any particular amazing noises, just very simple. I'd say this because there's two of us in the studio, it's always a case of like we need to kind of talk together. So if we didn't know piano we wouldn't be able to talk to each other in the studio yeah. and jam together so we experiment quite a lot but also try and stick to a key stick to a chord structure yeah. and then once we work out a basic chord structure we'll sort of uh, just experiment we've got so many synths here and we're just trying to get inspired by anything and a starting point can be any yeah. synth or any drum machine I mean the very yeah. first thing we do is we, we usually pick a key we've experimented with kind of going off a bit left but usually we say like let's start in F minor today the key usually sets the emotion or certainly sets the tone for how the track's going to sort of evolve. And from that point, we'll just experiment around. Some will maybe have a, if one's playing the piano, maybe the other person will have the SH-101 up just to get some bass. But we'll very much just play around to see what's kind of working. And kind of, I mean, maybe just before we sat the piano, if we do have an interesting sample, sometimes that could be a starting point or a particular noise. But more often than not, we would look at sampling after we kind of have a kind of base set of chords. Because I'd say as well, like the in the early stages, we always try and because I think in the last album we find that when we try to add detail and weird effects and stuff in the post process, we find it really hard to get them into tracks. But in this album, we definitely sat down and said, okay, we'll run this through four different pedals and record it wet and then get that sound because it was quite hard to kind of do these things afterwards. So once we get the chord structure, we'll try and create like a riff, say, but we'll pass it through so many different things. And it's generally to the detriment of it because we can never get it back again, but it kind of captures the moment perfectly. And you'll hear it in quite a lot of the tracks here that you just, I don't think we'd be able to recreate them again, but we know roughly what we did. Yeah. 
So it's always the two of you in the room, starting yeah. with the piano. And, and the piano, is that a, an electronic keyboard or is it a, like a, a proper piano? Um, we, ha we have a, a Rhodes, but we usually just use a, an electronic one. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll jam over the top and with the Whirly, just with the speakers and stuff, but yeah. we don't really record it. We'll just use it to kind of get ideas and just feel it out a bit. I mean, the handy thing is with the, like a, with a big um, 61 key MIDI one, we can just hit record and take record the MIDI notes in. And just even... Even if we record 20 minutes of just playing in all the MIDI chords, shut the session down, open it up another time, you've got it all there, you're not having to write stuff down, so it is an easy way of kind of mapping stuff out quickly. We're really good actually in this album every single day. We're like, just take five minutes here and let's burn off what we've done. Even sometimes if you're just putting stuff through VSTs or whatever just to get a rough idea, but we'd get the, the musicality and you'd for, we'd just try and make three or four demos every day and then just come back to them in a week or so. And it's just a case of like, we were actively trying to burn off something audio that we could listen to in a week's time, say. And we didn't do that for the first album. And it was, you know, you end up with like 30 different projects and you spend half the day opening them up again to find the one you're thinking of. Um, but it was nice to have all the little audio clips. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Uh, the first song we're going to look at is Atlas. And in a way, as we unravel that, will that unravel your working process? Yeah, I mean, it's gonna. It, Atlas is a good example, especially because the first track that kind of got completed with the album, but it's also um, it was one of the first ones we started uh, actively really sending out to a lot of different vocalists. So we've all the different directions that we explored in the initial stages of Atlas here, and it's actually funny. Some of them we um, haven't even heard for like a year, so yeah. we were digging back into this because we we shot really far and wide with them. Um, we hit up a lot of different vocalists and a lot of different like um string players and cellists and stuff just just try and really in many respects the goal wasn't to get features it was more to get other people's take on maybe some of our chords to even then resample and what what actually happened over the album the course of the album was that uh, often a demo would come back we'd love the vocal or the strings that had been added but they just didn't feel right for where we wanted that demo to go but we were pretty organized with everything that came back we had it into folders of like B flat minor, strings, Zosia, Julia Kent, A minor. And we just started to create a sample library of our own of everything that we got back. And what happened was as with the album process developed, six months later, we'd go back into the demo folder for say Atlas and we'd find strings that worked perfectly for another demo. Or that was a catalyst for a day when we were kind of feeling a bit short in inspiration and we'd maybe use them as a starting point. And it became this really big process of like a huge cutting board of just snipping bits here and moving around and I think being quite organized with the kind of core music structure and obviously knowing keeping everything organized in terms of the keys allowed us very quickly to sort of jump projects where if we had three projects that were in A minor we knew that elements could possibly move between them or even repitch you know that was another thing we did a lot which was we took a sample and just changed knocked it down a few semitones and that even yielded quite odd and sometimes really good uh sort of outcomes because you're repitching stuff that you'd actually had recorded and I think that's one of the best things that we've always found with sampling is it's just bringing like another perspective to the music that it's you but it's a little twist on it it's a slight difference and it was definitely a process that started to feel very much like we were building our own sample library as mm. things moved on and it was being able to dip back into that it's, it was overwhelming at some stages yeah, because yeah. you're like you liked three different directions the track was going in but you didn't really know which way you should yeah. select it. So it was one day you love the way it's a little bit harder or one day you like the vocalist, one day you like the cellist and you, you don't know which one to prioritise. It does become quite overwhelming. And then also if you send it out to people, 
and they all like different versions or I'm playing at home my girlfriend likes a certain version you're just like it starts making you second guess everything yeah I mean we're, we're up to like 20 directions per demo <laughs> <laughs> tricky I mean it, obviously you know that sounds very creative and creates a, an amazing world of possibility but then you know there's too much choice and too much possibility um, as yeah. you say it could be overwhelming um, just in terms of clarification because I can't see you I'm wondering which voice is which person I'm Matt Matt's here Okay, and then so that's Andy speaking as well. Excellent. And so, in terms of, um, I I think we should start digging into Atlas, but in terms of approaching the piano, does it default to one of you particularly, or do you both have piano training or experience? I mean, you know how, like, some songwriting partnerships, you know, one person tends to do one thing and another person tends to do another or are you constantly swapping i think with piano it's, i think we've both got to the point where we can talk to each other on it yeah so it's, it's like we kind of know how to play with each other and we kind of know directions of how to um structure chords it's like piano is quite a hard one because if you learn it too much you overthink it overanalyze it like i had a teacher for a couple of years and i think it's just when you self-teach and also learn stuff off youtube and certain tracks that you like you can develop your own style of piano. Yeah. And I think we've kind of, we definitely work in a way that we um, try and create chords together. So we'll never play the same notes together. We'll try and like harmonize. So like much. if someone playing an A, the other person plays an E and together you're getting like a chord but from two different synths. And that idea of kind of creating inversions or multiple instruments creating chords is like one of the central aspects to what we would do, which is, but being able to do that has to come with understanding what chords you want to have in their fullest way at the beginning and then you deconstruct it we're like right so we've got like an a minor chord andy you do a c on the the decker's dream i'm going to hold an a on the sh 101 and we're going to do an e somewhere else do you know what i mean so you kind of you build up these sort of walls of sound where the ear perceives the emotion of the chord yet you've got different things going on to kind of pull it together and i think that's definitely something that over time we've kind of yeah i think it's like fallen back on as a just it's a really especially when we perform live and we use mono since when we're live. It's a really good way of sort of being able to actually create those big walls of sort of chord music. But I think I remember learning piano and you always want to play these big five note, six note chords. And then when you come into the studio and you put six notes into the Andromeda and play a pad, there's nothing else in the track. There's nothing, yeah. There's no room left in the track to do anything else. So I think the idea of just harmonizing through mono synths and not mono noises, but even like tonal noise, like two tones and stuff, we kind of really got into even more so in this album, just kind of trying to push it as far as we could. Very interesting. Um, so with Atlas, what should we hear first? What should so we- I think we'll just start with the pads here. So this is just one of the starting points. I'm just going to fade this in um, just sort of indiscriminately. Sampling was like a big part of, first of all, sampling in a sense of taking samples and, and pitching them around, but also multi-sampling like vocals and getting into the idea of, uh, we, we picked up a load of um, like kids' keyboards, like the Yamaha. Was the, I think we bought every single Casio you could from yeah. like, like polyphonic <laughs> sampling from we the had, 80s like, up. Casio FZ1 and we had loads of kids' toys with like a, the, yeah. the, the, the Portasound. Yeah, the Yamaha Portasound. So basically, the idea is that taking a, a single note um, recording, which we used our voice quite a lot across the album, like on Hawk, that's um, the melody is actually our voice. Um, and this one here, it's a female single uh, choral note 
it was recorded in A, and then it's mapped to a keyboard, and then it'll repitch the notes so you can hold chords. And it gives you this kind of class sort of tonal quality by instead of having a full choir, pitching one note across the keyboard and creating chords. So we'd come up with the original chords, had this as like a starting point, and it was, it was originally about 100 BPM. And at that point, we then sent it out to um, some string players and other vocalists to see if anyone could kind of come up with any sort of different directions. So, well, I think with like a lot of the tracks in the album, that's this is basically what they sounded like for maybe a month. It was a lot yeah. of just lots of choral pads, lots yeah. of like straight up pianos. I think in the past we find if we send it to um, develop track to a vocalist that it came back and there wasn't it was quite hard to rework it, especially if drums or if you have a swingy drum. They'll sing to that or sing around it. We maybe would sometimes have a clap in or some anchoring element. I think some of the demos that we would have sent to the vocalists, we gave them that set of pads and then we would give them like a rhythm track, but it would be something just like a click, just so they've got something to follow. But it was very, at this stage, we found on the last album, we were sending fully finished ideas out and then it was just impossible for anyone. You, you were getting attempts at sort of adding to it, but really the idea was far too formed and we got to a point where you could only add little chirps and snippets and we were definitely wanted to have something a bit more collaborative at this stage. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. So, I mean, you really, you know, share something quite simple but quite open-ended for people to react to. So it's almost as if you could all be in the same room playing together. You know, all these extra band members are kind of collaborating with you by hearing this quite open-ended sound and then you then in turn respond to that. And, and so there, there was a real back and forth that we, um, some of the demos would have gone back and forth over a course of a month or a couple of months. Yeah, I think that the original idea kind of, when we're thinking about it, was those pads you hear, it's like if we could get someone to re-sing them, but like a, across three notes and make it very much like um, a proper choral pad, like that kind of old Irish music even. And we were definitely trying to start up, have a starting point of like choral m- music made in the proper way rather than using a synthesizer to synthesize it but we we're experimenting with both sides of things so um it was definitely a learning process in that way as well we can play some demos yeah. that uh, probably demonstrate that a bit better so. yeah that would be great yeah, so we got the kick in this one it's like so, the anchoring point so those this may have been an even earlier demo where it was just a string which is the string vst So what has happened here in terms of getting to this point? So that's, um, we sent it out to uh, this focus, Rosina, and she just did her choral take over the top of these strings. And the strings are the same notes that you'd heard in the previous pads. Yeah, and it was one of those things when we got this back, we loved it. Well, you know, this works great, but it was definitely, this is an example of one of the ones where we loved, yeah, that loved this as a sample is incredible, but it wasn't right for where we wanted to take this particular song. It's like you hear these and you think, I hear different tracks and it inspires us to kind of even say, okay, you could make a different track because there's definitely rhythms and, and inflections of the voice 
that wasn't what we initially had in mind for this track but this is definitely adding even more and it's, it's like almost wasted trying to do it like that but yeah and this happened i mean we were we were for each demo and i think in total was about 150 demos across the album but i think we sent out um 25 demos to artists and each demo was sent to about eight artists so it was a big really broad and and at that stage we just wanted to really cast the net super 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 wide i'll play another one from the the chat we contacted a couple of cellists um for this album julia kent and zosia we listened to their albums and stuff they'd worked on previously yeah. and really wanted to kind of start working with strings and understand the process of working with strings because it's obviously another whole realm of stuff to yeah. learn and understand and you know like we've got quite a lot of old 80s synthesizers especially like the digital ones that um try and replicate these and that's what we've always used before and they're like prevalent in quite a lot of house music but we kind of wanted to see the difference in working with actual string players as well and what the difference in sound and everything it was also about that Zuzi that we contacted that she's a uh, more experimental it's more than just playing strings that she uses she would, she would do plucks and grinds and she does these sort of shrills and all these different ways of sort of using um the instrument in a quite unique way and, and this um so th- this was a, one of her demos she we, we got about 15 to 20 from her but this is one that we ended up using for another track so it's kind of yeah like with um cello you, you can get so much different movement that you can never get from synthesizers really yeah that is what she sent you in response to what you had sent her she actually sent us back maybe like 30 30 different tapes a lot so that was just an example of just experiment like and you see those sort of descending like shrills Mm. or thrills they're amazing so that final part became another track that ended up one of the b-sides it was like one of the starting points even like another track because we were it's like a noise that almost like something that we would previously if just sampled from like another record yeah it's like a sample you dream of finding do you know what i mean yeah um so it was definitely we felt like we were definitely onto something in terms of at this stage keeping it really broad and seeing even demos that maybe were coming in that weren't right for the direction of we were looking for or were i mean it wasn't even that we really set out to start to write the album in this way but it became instantly something that we were like we need to be really organized with everything that we get sent back here so that we can draw on it later on um, in the process. And so then this is just an example of another um, vocal one we had. good to be able to hear these things and it's such an interesting process that you've initiated I think here because 
It's almost as if, as electronic artists who've responded to the inspiration of sounds that you've heard from other people's music and think, oh, we'll sample that, we'll use that and create something with it. Instead, you've kind of gone further back in the process and, and kind of encouraged people to respond to your emotions and your, your thoughts and your yeah. sketches. And then in turn, you then respond to that. But you then have the whole bank of possibilities of how you want to take that further and it's interesting because i think that's one of the things about bicep you know the music sounds so self-contained as i was saying it's in such a world of its own and we asked people if they had any questions for you before we were going to do the interview and we had an amazing response i mean there was a kind of almost instant 138 questions arrived and and so many of them um wondered how do you start a track and and clearly for this album, this is the approach. This is the process that you decided to use, presumably from you know all that experience you had before of how frustrating it could be chasing or trying to manipulate a sample that you found inspiring, but you know, just couldn't squeeze it into the music in the way that you wanted to. I think there was less complete dead ends in this album. The previous album, we just had dead end after dead end where we would spend a week really trying to get something and because we hadn't spent the time in the initial stages, we didn't know what you we were trying to say in the beginning. I think, um, I think from the live show and Turner for two years, we, we've worked out what tracks really work. And it's pretty amazing when you can strip out a track to just one element, for instance, just, and we could just drop in that vocal, one little section of it, and the crowd could go mad just to that little section, or we bring in the riff and people instantly know it. We knew when we started this album that you kind of, Unless there's like a core to the track, it's going to be really hard to strip it down and play it live. Because in the last album, we started stripping out some of the tracks that were the almost the sum of their own parts. Like each part, when you isolate it, you couldn't tell it was that track. It was just quite, yeah. they weren't strong. So like Atlas is a good example of where we set out. We're like, okay, these cores, I really like them. Then you stand on their own yeah. and work three minutes as an ambient piece. Well, it was like the live show, we could take a different drum machine one week. Like for instance, Opal, we could just stick a 909 on it it would be completely different to if, say, we had like a broken 808 on it. And we realized that it's not really the drums that really matter in that track, for instance, that as long as the main riff is like yeah. the core still there, but it seems fresh every time you yeah. we'll get a new piece of equipment and we'll run it through it. So, yeah, it's getting that core DNA was definitely at the starting point of like trying to get a core base of tracks as well for this album. Like a lot of times it would be when we're um the second stage of the writing process is we'll have like a riff going, pads going, and we'll mess about in different synths. We'll try out different starting points, remake different patches, doing everything live and also just putting everything through different effects. So it essentially would still be the same musicality, but we'd trial it through all the different synths we got here. We're kind of lucky we've got it all set up. So you press space bar on our computer, everything's synced. We've got like a modular, we've got um, a big patch bay and we can patch everything in very quickly and just trial through different things and we never really try and stick to the same process in that way and that was that was born out of um our old studio which was actually a lot bigger and it wasn't organized because we didn't really need it to be organized and we just had a load of five meter midi cables and we had no patch bay or anything organized and it was really just a case of we would just walk around the room plugging stuff in unplugging moving around and that worked kind of great but it was also chaotic and disorganized like and spider web by the end yeah and it was because it, there's so much space you could kind of do it you could move since turn them around it was just it was like three times the amount of size that we needed for what we were doing so we we moved to um, a new studio and we wanted to stay in east london but just with gentrification stuff unfortunately fortress closed down and uh we moved to just under a little coffee shop and we've it's 
it's like a small bedroom really the size of it but we had to get very creative about packing everything in that's where kind of doing all the patch bags and getting really organized but in the long run it's been a really good idea because you don't need that much space it's been good to keep everything quite tight and kind of you can sit in a seat and have everything and try and use everything as well we don't really have anything we don't use yeah yeah very interesting so you're kind of constantly challenging yourselves but also coming up with solutions to these these questions and these tasks and also by being forced to move studio you were challenged but you rose to that and and worked out ways that you could turn that to your advantage and yeah. clearly it's working really well so getting that um those responses to your initial ideas for atlas and then getting those back having being faced with all these different possibilities what did you do then how did what happened in the decision making process so we knew when we stripped all of those um other parts away still was something about those pads that kind of was was closer to the core idea that we were going for with this and um, so we, yeah. we went through a load of um i think we went through a load of exploring all the all the options we had back and ended up coming back to just right let's use those vocals for other tracks or bank them and we, we started with this one so this is a quite uh, we couldn't find a demo that was just the drums we've got the drums but this is our first attempt at the melody for atlas which is completely um different so i'm gonna i'll play you this um full demo here of all these different elements that are here is it trial and error that leads yeah, you to I mean, make it, those judgments it uh yeah yeah we just we just move around loads and uh every day we'll be trimming i mean sometimes removing parts of the track is more important than adding we tend to find i mean that's i'd say like even for i remember even on basses we we're quite specific on yeah. like sub bass we're trying four different synths like we're constantly going between yeah. the sh101 Korg Monopoly and yeah. the Deckard Stream yeah. to see what could work lowest. And yeah, we're trying to get two octaves together and slightly detuning them yeah. and seeing how much sub we could get in without being too overpowered. And then uh, this is a melody, I think, coming up now. So this is the first attempt at it. And what's that played on? We use the Intelligel Metropolis quite a bit to kind of get sketches or get ideas because it's a very quick sequencer. We're not massive fans of like spending a lot of time sequencing on the computer or anything like that and trying to do a lot of stuff hands on, whether that be via triggering and arpeggiators or like um, modular sequencers. But I think the Metropolis is a really good one to get quick ideas and it's very hands on. And yeah. it also does stuff that you would never do when you're using MIDI, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, see, it's like one of these things as well. It's like, I listen back to this now and I'm like, I really like that riff, but, but it, there's it's, like one note in it. It's, just, well, it's just, it's very one dimensional emotionally. Like the chords had some emotion, but then the riff came in and it complemented the chords, but didn't really like, we always try and get that conversation going where 
each element has to come together and, and, and lift up to become something more, do you know what I mean? And that is one of the things about doing um, melodies on stuff like the Metropolis. It's amazing, but it's quite, it's, you're kind of harvesting from a, a modular sequencer riffs and it's a mixture of you're not fully, you're in control. The bad thing as well is well, when you try and record the MIDI from those like modular sequencers and then you start putting it back through, it just doesn't sound the same. Yeah. Like, they're great for techno or more simple melodies, but I think we just knew that melody was a bit basic, really. So, um, yeah, we kind of shelved that track for a month or two, and then we came back to it one day, sat down, and then we got the Atlas melody in a day on the Intelligel Atlantis, which is like a like a modular SH101. Um, yeah, it's quite good. You can add another oscillator to it. So we've got um, one of the Furboss harmonic oscillators and then put that into a separate channel, which you can't really do unless you've modded your SH-101. So it's quite nice to do that and mix it together. We recorded it wet through um, lots of make noise yeah. modular as well. It was pretty much three or four different modules. We wanted the melody to speak with the chords a lot more effectively, so we went and did it in MIDI. And uh, what we did was we, we had um, some arpeggiators that we triggered to turn on and off at certain times. So the melody speeds up, slows down, and what that allowed to happen was there was bits where the slide, the portamento, would glide open, and then there's bits where it snaps shut, and it kind of gave us this sort of shuddering melody that moved open. I'll play just the isolated melody on its own here now. So you can hear it opening up. You can hear the delay as well where it's shuddering. So there's bits where it, like, it almost gets really wide and opens up and then it shutters down to wee snappy bits. There's a big reverse reverb on the lexicon as well on it. We got that riff and then we wanted to make some adjustments to it and just could not get that back so we just we have, we have one take of it and yeah, it's in, even it's, it's like mixing those effects because if listening back even there you're like they're quite heavy duty especially when you're making a riff you, you always want it to be quite punchy and cut through but as, yeah i think our, our process is just like kind of drench it in effects and it makes it instantly sit back in the mix but it's yeah. kind of nice that it's not really in your face and it's interesting how you create these things and it's interesting that you're constantly questioning it and searching for a solution it is problem solving like yeah. i think yeah. a lot of the times but it has to like there's a couple of barriers to get through in terms of something that we kind of get close to finishing the first one is if we both actually can keep putting up i mean we regularly have very different opinions on elements and we've always been really good at it but we have a an agreement where um nothing gets forced through if we're not both behind it because at the end of the day if you do have to end up performing it for a couple of years, you both need to really be behind it or you're sort of chasing something that's not there. So that's a good way of sort of helping narrow down the process. And then the other thing is anything that we would record that day, we, we take a burn and have it. We have a big demos folder that's online in like a, a streamable Dropbox. And we uh, would constantly just be listening through and just through re just listening over and over and over the recordings on this we both cycle home and cycle to and from the studio so that gives us you know an extra 50 minutes a day of listening and it's a really good way of sort of stuff that just you can design and sort of problem solve all you want but when you 
sometimes we get so-called solutions or whatever but then it just you don't feel anything from them you've kind of it's it all works but it means nothing so that becomes a process where you're like right we just need to be if the music's not speaking to us then we just sort of goes in the bin yeah i think a good thing about what we do is we try not to get too attached to the music especially in the demo form because if you really attach yourself to a demo and you really want to make it work but the other person doesn't particularly like it it becomes quite restrictive and counterintuitive to making music together we always had that approach with like digging and sharing music on our blog to kind of always share stuff move on keep fresh never kind of hoard stuff or hoard ideas just always keep moving and um yeah we try and reflect that in the music and keep making demos keep it fresh not trying to kind of get stagnated in pushing through ideas i think it's also really good to always know that like i mean an example is there's a track that we uh really struggled on um with the album and it got down to the final track listing and then we cut it because we just it was nearly good but the funny thing is that we then opened it up recently made a few adjustments cut the bass out and redid the bass and now we're really it's potentially something we're really happy with so it's i think knowing that just because something doesn't work at the time doesn't mean that that idea is wrong or bad a fresh perspective in six months can really bring something better to it so i think it's there's not really any like feels it's more things just don't work at that current time with how you're viewing it yeah yeah i think it's really interesting i mean clearly a lot of this is based on a trust and understanding between the two of you and you've known each other so long that you seem to have built up this understanding and this knowledge, the knowledge of each other's tastes and, and the knowledge of, of what you both like. And that, in turn, I mean, that led to the blog, you know, um, yeah. because that was reflecting your interests and your shared tastes and also kind of came out of you sharing music when you weren't together, when you're in different parts of the country studying separately from each other. And it's interesting, I think those two things seem to be quite crucial to how Bicep create music and and it's almost as if by having that blog you want to share music but you're also you've got certain standards and and certain ideas of of what is worth sharing it's Um, essentially a place where we share it with our friends and the harshest critics of ourselves are our friends and they're not scared to like say stuff about it so we're always sharing stuff on a blog and actually just trying to impress them like as if we were 16 again and we were sat at like a garage and we're fighting over the CD player. I mean, it's, it's always that same process when we're making tunes. It's like we're not really making them for the wider audience. It's more a case of we're trying to just give it to our friends and hopefully they like it. And uh, We were lucky that like when we were younger, we had a, a group of mates that were all very, uh, very heavily into their music and also very like obscure music was really, you know, kind of a big thing. You know, we, we were like 16, 17. We were all going to like techno nights, but also people were like, making Italo disco CDs to bring out the kind of parties. And it was very much like the idea of kind of curating a CD. And this is like back in like early 2000s, curating a CD and bringing it to like um, some pre-drinks and, and, and having loads of obscure music that no one knew was like a real, it wasn't cool to like bring a load of well-known hits. Do you know what I mean? It was all about yeah. sort of digging. And that's definitely where the blog initiated from that idea of sort of uh, us just being able to share. We just took that on and just created a little corner of the internet that you could kind of shape and sort of build build yes, on your especially own especially if you had like we both had full-time jobs at the minute at that time and you're kind of being told what to do and even if you're working in creative fields which we both were your ideas kind of end up getting flattened out and yeah that was the place where we didn't have to flatten out our ideas we could just do whatever we wanted yeah like i was um my first job it was the financial crash and uh i just come out of university i studied graphic design and you know got offered a job in the middle east and took it and uh was out there for a year 
but it was a real crash course in sort of huge cultural change, but also design was viewed very, very, very differently. It was a service. It was a service that you kind of tricked yourself into thinking you've some say over, but really you didn't. And that was a real catalyst for the blog being like an escape and having total control, but also being able to really curate things in a way that kind of felt very personal. Yeah, yeah, because it's fascinating to think that, am I right in thinking that in some ways you didn't set out to be musicians, you know, you're music lovers, no, music so, fans. No, yeah. And suddenly, in a way, it's almost as if in order to satisfy this core group of friends that you have, you, you had to make music because you couldn't find any more obscure stuff. So you had to come up with the goods yourselves. Yeah, I mean, it was with the friends, it was definitely more at the early blog stages. Yeah. And then what happened was we started to get offered um, some DJ gigs off the back of the blog. But there was like, you know, we got there, there was when I was in Dubai, Andy went on a, a tour of China yeah. via the blog. So um, him and Rory Hammer, they, they were in China together um, and did like eight shows. And I was sitting slogging away, you know, doing bright gold logos in Dubai and they're off in China. And I was like, oh, I really like I want a bit of this. And then um, got offered um, a couple of gigs in Barcelona and then some in New York. And it was not they weren't like, you know, just seeing these sort of a. Uh, gigs pop up that were exotic and far away and and you know wasn't just DJing and in sort of bars in London really kind of kick-started uh wow there's like there's a life here that could be really creative and fun but then that was sort of as we dabbled into the bit of the DJing it began it, it was really it's been really slow we started doing re-edits disco re-edits which was kind of that era as well was really big at the time and working with some of that source material you get like an ear for like those old synths, you know, especially like re-editing old funk records and kind of like electro boogie and stuff. You know, you kind of, you get a, those rubbery sort of bass lines and stuff became something that we really yearned after. And we couldn't afford any of the synths. And, uh, VSTs were particularly bad. VSTs were really awful at the time. We were making music on laptops. Um, so we the next logical step of trying to make music that we kind of sounded good to our ears was sort of, fell into the 90s house bracket because it was quite easy to get an aesthetic that our ears liked that we didn't need a load of equipment and that's where the sampling kind of came in you know you could sample an organ and chop it up and it could kind of i mean when we listen back it's very much like laptop sample house and it's it is what it is really yeah it was like definitely us learning in public really yeah i think we were quite gung-ho with just finishing stuff and sending it out and getting it released and we didn't i mean because we weren't seeing ourselves as like musicians we were guys who ran a blog who wanted to put out some edits and sample house it removed a bit of the kind of um it kept it free because we weren't criticizing yeah we weren't but i think it's a natural process that when you start to have that stuff out there and you see reviews come in and you see people comment on it you then start to really take it a lot more seriously and that's the point we started learning piano a lot more and saying, right, we need to know why we're doing stuff. We're not, we can't just replicate what we heard 20 years ago and think that it's especially, enough. You especially know? two people sat around the laptop. It gets tiresome very yeah. quickly. And a lot of guesswork going on. And just, it was very, uh, it's cool to look back on, but it was also, it was very, um, the opposite of kind of having a musical background and really knowing where you start. It was very loose. Um, and then we picked up a couple of cents from just the gig money. And then as soon as we got a Juno, and a 909 that was uh we got a juno 60 and that was like i mean and we still have it it's still one of our absolute favorite it's one of the best since the sketch ever and that was definitely a real catalyst to kind of like whoa right just this at synth alone and it doesn't have any presets well it, it does the presets we never use them but it's very hands-on synth 
And I think just the idea of every slider that you manipulate and just having an ADSR and moving around and filters, that was a massive catalyst into kind of kickstarting, wanting to get much deeper into music when we kind of actually, it became tactile and something that we could respond and, and feel and kind of... Yeah, I think as well, even I remember getting the 909 and you realise that when you record the 909 in, that doesn't line up perfectly. The hats aren't bang on that grid of Ableton. And you're constantly questioning, what's this mean? What's the accent do? Why does it, you know, like stuff you don't really do in Ableton because it's essentially just blocks and you never really question it. As long as it sounds okay. But um, when you actually get like the piece of equipment and you run it into like a, a small mixing desk, you still get like a really nice vibe very quickly. And a lot of our reference points where we started off in old techno, it just like was a, a like a eureka moment where he's just like, okay, this is how they did it. Or, that's why it sounds like this or like mm. I remember just even like swing and stuff discovering swing for the first time and just like <laughs> <laughs> it's like ah yeah. yeah there's a couple of questions that came through um, that kind of relate to this in a way uh, one from Cos Sinus Sinus who says you know what software did you use before having more money and then Ruben Todd wanted to know what software was the new album made on so no, um, Ableton, Ableton. Yeah, we only ever used Ableton. <laughs> and at the time, Ableton back then was frowned upon. You know, there's a lot of, well, we were obviously only dabbling in, in music then, but a lot of people said the sound quality is not as good now as this. And, but we've got to know it inside out. And it, Ableton's just come along leaps. And, I mean, it's incredible now. It's so, um, we love it. And I think just learning that very sketchy initial approach of cutting up audio and having a lot of flexibility with audio has been great for how we work now, which is we would record huge big takes in and we're very hands-on and snipping up. But we would, at the moment, we would now use Ableton mostly for just cutting up the audio that we record in. Mm. But um, yeah, it's it's amazing. Amazing. Um, and so what happened to Atlas next? So that was kind of really, once we got the riff in, that was really the final, final bit of the problem. I think that was the final part where the track had kind of been finished in terms of the writing stage. And then it was just doing the layouts and sort of changing drums around and we added some extra strings and stuff at the end but I think just when you have those two elements the pad and the riff that spoke to each other and we had the um the offer has a sample as well which is kind of drifts through the track very kind of in an ethereal way that was the, the stage where for us the hard part of kind of the writing process is, is done and the rest was really quite it was quite nice to have that one finished because we were like okay this is sets the tone for how we finished tracks for the rest of the album and it gave us um you know like something to focus on like production level also something to balance the other tracks mix wise off and even if it's just roughly it just gives you an idea of a direction where you can start um seeing the other tracks finishing up which is when it's uh, open-ended and you don't have anything and the label haven't particularly said we want this track for the album when you're in that kind of zone that's when you're working across 30 demos and you can't really tell which one's better than the rest of them and you don't have a direction how to finish them so especially when we were working across like five different versions of each track where one might be ambient one might be more techno it helped us get real focused on this is a good vibe i like this vibe it fits with the last album but also it adds something new so we kind of use that as like a starting point to kind of shape the other tracks around yeah one other thing about the writing process as well is for us it's we still feel we're very much in like a growing phase. We, we, we don't feel accomplished in a sense that we don't, we, I think if you move on to maybe say more like a concept album, I would imagine that's a point where you feel you're accomplished and you now just want to kind of, you have an idea from the very beginning. We very much set out as this is now 
the first six months is a complete frenzy of just trying hundreds of different ideas and experimenting and wanted to keep it very open and free. But one of the restrictions we set ourselves was that we kind of felt that the first album, some of the dance floor tracks like Or and Rain, yeah, they're, they're kind of great, but they're not, for us personally, they're not really what I'd want to listen to at home. They're what I want to listen to when we're, we're out in a club. But we kind of felt that also for this album, we wanted to make the differentiation between the live versions and the home versions. And it became something that we were very certain at the beginning that the album was going to be a home listening version of the music that would eventually end up in the live show. So one of the restrictions we set ourselves was that we didn't want to have any 4-4 and that really gave us a bit of a framework for the beginning of the album where we were able to feel comfortable exploring stuff in a way that wasn't thinking about clubs or live shows. We knew that those versions could come later and would be developed later, but it gave us, I think, a sense of freedom Naturally, coming from a DJing background and starting to produce music with the idea of it being played out, you develop a way of approaching music that's very much with a club-oriented mind. You know, you think about where it's going to be played and who's going to be listened to it and where they're going to listen to it. And I think we really, especially when we are on the second album, wanted to step back and just write music for music and not feel that it had to, you know, work in a big crowd here or this. And so that definitely gave us some sort of sense of freedom. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so Atlas, I think we should round up Atlas and then yeah. move on to another song. So maybe we could hear a finished version or a bit of a finished version to round things up and then we'll get talking about one of the other songs on the record. So that is Atlas, the final finished version that appears on the album Isles. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to look at some more of the songs on the album. So now we're going to look at two tracks together, I think partly because that's how they were created. Am I right in yeah. thinking that? Mm-hmm. Apricots and Saku started separately, but they kind of... Uh, you'll explain it better yeah, than Yeah, I mean, uh, they started separately, fused together, and then um, separated again. Yeah. So it's what it's like our process of hybriding tracks, and a lot of times we'll um, if we didn't want to um, work on the piano one day, we'll work on the drums. So uh, we've got like lots of little drum tracks and maybe uh, unfinished ideas, and maybe that's with a vocal, and we try and hybrid across different tracks that we might not have a vocal for, or might not have drums made for yet. And um, so this is like a an example really of uh, like a hybriding. A stage we go through early in the process of when we create demos yeah so um this initially was a, a bit faster i don't have the faster version but we the saku drums were pretty much done in an hour we were listening to kind of bits of footwork and wanting to play with like sort of polyrhythms and sort of um never-ending structures of drums that sort of just like uh you know happen on thirds and and just playing around different rhythms we did these drums and then we also had a melody and this demo was kind of done very, very early on in the day. So I'll play it. Mm-hmm. 
And so what is that based around? So this is a hang drum and yes. Um, and we, you have I mean, a hang? Are you playing? No, the hang no, no. Yourself? Unfortunately, no, no. This is like a multi-sampled. This is like it's, a. It's kind of cool because we can you can add portamento to it, which you can't really do with an obviously uh, an original hand drum because we we don't really want to kind of take traditional instruments and play them in the same way. There's quite a lot of experiments at the start of this album when we work with like um, glass bowls and resampling yeah. them, putting yeah. them into polyphonic samplers and using portamento. And even with this here, I think it's just like a multi-sample instrument, but we recreated a, a kind of chain of effects, ran it through the desk. We used a, a Nio filter as well. It's, it's like an analog filter with distortion and stuff on it and compressor. And we try and test very clean noises through that. And yeah, that's like not your traditional hang drummy noise, but um, yeah, it's, it's a really hard thing to do, especially when it, because they're very distinct noises, they're beautiful, but it's it doesn't always feel like us. It's, yeah, I mean, we were casting a net wide and trying to move out of just focusing on standard, when I say standard synth noises, we wanted to break out with contacting the cellists, the violinists, lots more focus. We really wanted to expand the sound palette. This was just a step too far where it felt kind of a bit derivative of other artists. And especially with the, the slightly different approach to the drums, Going for um, a melody like this just felt. Um, I it mean, almost sounds Caribbean, like yeah, steel it, it, it just it, it. We were happy with the demo, but I think we quite quickly were like, right, like the melody, but as an idea, it's not really working for where we're trying to go. So we, um, this is where the apricots vocal I think first came in, and uh, we'd um, we picked up the vinyl beating heart and uh, had uh, recorded it in and our sampler and MPC and we're just playing around with pitching it up and we had the Saki drums and then this is what we got. And so that vocal... Yeah, that's Apricot's vocal, pitched yes, up. And, and that's sampled from a, a record. Did you say beating heart? Yeah. Which? Yeah, we, we set up a part of a website, um, bicepmusic.com forward slash samples, to kind of really shed light on the samples that we used across the whole album. I think it's a big important thing of just uh, discovery, because especially with when we used to use the blog and hip hop tracks that we used to love, we'd always reference the original samples. And yeah. from that there, we find so much music ourselves. So, yeah. yeah. So that's jumped through to, an, this is the version with the vocal pitched down. And it was cool, but again, it felt, um, it just didn't feel... It doesn't feel like it suits the track, essentially. Yeah, it's, I mean... It's, it's like... Um, we'll definitely maybe play around with mixing those, the drums and vocals live. The thing is, it, I think it just didn't feel like our music. So at that stage, we um, had Saku, the drums, and we sent them out to uh, um, Clara. And this was one of the tracks that really uh, came together quite quickly. And we sent... Uh, I'm just going to just play the actual track. You can hear the drums again. So SP1200 drums. And yeah. yeah, they're all like pitched down, so you get like a little bit of distortion stuff on them. But yeah, you know, took the clavier. That's basically the only thing we did. Didn't yeah. even really change the mix or anything on it. Yeah. And she, um, this is one of the first tracks I think we worked with Clara on. And she's just, I mean, instantly just captured the kind of emo emotive element. We, we had the subs, we set some subs. Um, in the demo that we sent her with the drums that kind of gave a, a general musical direction and then she just riffed on top of it and it was uh, this one came together really well really quickly 
did she come up with that hum as well or did you you take that from something that she came up with yeah so that's there's a sub that we had sent across and she basically just mirrors the sub just plays the root note over it right but we'd said about we'd explained to her about we want to these ideas of things being choral and these sort of walls of noise and and what you can see with the atlas chords how we were trying to really get her behind this idea of sort of creating chords from multiple mono voices mono voices yeah. she we just said can we get stacks and stacks of your vocals together to build this sort of chord That was what we tried to do in Atlas, like we talked about, and this yeah. is sustained chords in the perfect way. Like we just give the same brief, but it's a perfect example of you can give the same brief to um, a different vocalist and they come back with different interpretations. This is exactly what we kind of envisaged in the early days, but it's quite nice to have both to kind of draw on yeah. for influence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. it works so well and then she came up with the vocal melody although those lines as well you know yeah. so she responded in two different ways to the brief you know which is quite exciting it's, yeah. it's almost as if um i'm just thinking about your days doing design work in dubai for people and you know you they were giving you a brief and you had to respond yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're flipping yeah. it back and you're sending <laughs> yeah, it to yeah, clara yeah. yeah and she's kind of responding to the brief but obviously in a much more fluid yeah um and creative way for both parties i think when yeah. we're working with other people from our previous design experience we know to kind of keep the brief as open-ended yeah and try and not restrict it you want creativity to come from it yeah we were wanting this to be a collaboration not a session musician you know we wanted to feel and when this came back, then we added this in response to her vocals. So this set of chords was the final piece. So this track really did actually begin at the beginning with the drums. She put in a vocal, we added the chords at the end, and then we added the final strings. And it happened on different days, kind of just as a, a kind of quite classic recording process of stacking it up yeah i think she might have sang with the, uh, the original demo actually did have the hang drum in it so it definitely developed quite a lot yeah but even just having the subs the bass in there from the beginning was just a, a solid grinding of the kind of pacing the tempo and basically it kind of gives a restriction of where she can take her voice because it has to correspond with the bass notes and that was kind of i think that was about the right balance of enough of the direction from us and really allowing her to add on to it. So yeah, we're, we're super happy. And then in comes Apricots and Apricots began um, as just a synth the Korg Poly 6 and we were playing around with that Nio filter doing um triggering the filter. It's got an ADSR which you can trigger the filter on and also it distorts it as well and it's quite a lot of little things you can do like um rooting wise on it. For doing like rhythms and melodies one of the main um 
things we've discovered from mixing like triggers from drum machines and sending them into like say the Juno was the first example that we had of that. We send a trigger from the rim shot into the Juno. You're not tapping a rhythm in or sending a MIDI rhythm. You're sending a drum rhythm in and that drum rhythm, the synth responds to that. And that was uh, when you held down a chord, you'd get a, a triggered ARP. And then we discovered triggering filters. And with the filter, you can set a pads in. And then based on your filter settings, you can actually make the filter suck down or you can use a gate and you actually allow the filter through. And uh, that's become like quite a process for us in terms of... Um, like the first album, we did it quite a lot. Yeah, we would try and avoid ever sending like any rhythms from MIDI. We'd try and send a MIDI as an entire chord and any rhythmic elements will come through triggering of filters or using a gate. And this was the first day on apricots I mean we've got so many experiments like yeah. this that we yeah. try different chords yeah. through and this is a different key as well I think this is um but it's it's amazing with like old since like poly 6 and you can control the VCF with the modular equipment as well which we do quite a lot and it's it's amazing that you can just mix old synths from the 80s but with like the latest Euro rack gear and it makes a massive difference in how they sound or how they've been traditionally used in the past and it's, it's like a, quite a thing for us as well to kind of have the touchstone of the past in the 80s synth but then also try and update it, try and make it sound new. So here's, uh, here's the development on from um that early demo of apricots where we had the poly six i think at this stage then we changed the key we pitched up a couple of semitones and did some strings over the top and some drums yes this is the 909 through the now filter as well really frosty and and then it's the deckard's dream on the strings they're like high And this was actually played totally live as a jam. It wasn't even, not even really trying to record anything. We were just sometimes just working something out. And some of the strings happened a bit late. But with this exact recording, we just, we kept it because it just became one of those ones where the first take of those strings was just like, that's it. Yeah, we that tried redoing it, it sounded awful. Yeah, the synth there is the um, Waldorf microwave, like yeah. the old 80s one. With that triggering idea, it was like a synth that you've never, that's never really been done before. So yeah, using the Nio is like a different way of updating that kind of noise. Like we love wavetable synths and that's probably our favorite one. It's the original microwave and it definitely gives it like a different flavor. That comes from using Eurorack and you know, you, you mix and match in different filters and you realize that an oscillator can sound drastically different if you've got a different filter on it. And yeah, these are like early experiments to seeing what tracks work with different filters and yeah. different distortions and stuff. We're huge fans of sort of um, a lot of the digital 90s rack stuff. Like, I mean, the um, Roland Super JD and obviously the Waldorf and stuff. The, the, um, but they're a nightmare to program and they're really slow. And we have, we've, we've bought a little uh, patch editor, like a little patch editor that you plug into the back of them. That's a little like universal one, but it's slow and it's kind of annoying. This interface is not great. And that's kind of where we've, got to the point where we have all of these sort of big, nice 90 style pads, but then f we get the kind of ADSR and the movement from other outboard, like the filters and the... Modular, yeah. Modular. Yeah. So 
Here's the pad on its own. The string even, sorry. And you can hear all the little bits where it's late, or it's it's not. That kind of really wavy timing, and there it comes in a wee bit late as well. It was just a. But it gives it uh, a humanity though, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's a real um. It's that Decker stream. It's like the CS City, and it's got lots of controls to make to like humanize it because. I think the original idea for that synth was... It's very slow, isn't it? It's very, yeah, it's, like... It's meant to replicate, like, a string player, and everything just kind of moves around as if you're playing, uh, like, a stringed instrument. And that was... Sometimes we will get the chords written, and then we'll do a take, and we'll be quite organised and say, right, this is the take, and that was definitely one where it was left... Record was left on, and we just kind of got something we were really happy with. And, yeah, it's, kept it. I, I think we tried to re-record it, as I said, a few times, and it just it sounded, you know... Sometimes just playing live over the top of it can just take it. I think strings particularly grid. work yeah. well for that. You know, if you miss your bass, it sounds jarring. But I think I'm um, with strings. And then um, this is the vocal. So this was the vocal sample that yeah. you originally tried on Saku. Yeah, and then. Below it is uh, the Bulgarian um, state choir, and that's through a gate. So we just we have this huge big um, choir sample. And we just fed it through a gate, and it's just a 909 hat triggering the little jabs of the. But obviously, the 909 hat's been turned off, so you can't hear it. But what it's doing is giving out rhythm. Yeah, we'll use like 909s or the 808 particularly to create gates or, you know, keep things quite hands-on, even if we're like sampling something in the box. Yeah. If we chopped up a vocal sample or even just put it into the MPC and tried to tap it in, it doesn't have that fluidity, do you know what I mean? It's always going to sound snipped up, whereas along a gate where you've got settings and you can kind of change the attack, change the threshold, even just the volume and and moving the um, the hat live gives you this fluidity where you can kind of... Keep bring them to life a bit more you know yeah we just try and yeah. keep these wee small details is like so that every single element throughout every track in the album slightly varies i don't like having one element stay exactly the same even if it's the tiniest little detail of um like a gate increasing slightly in volume or just um different velocities and um, we, we find that through the live show that it's like that push and pull that you're always kind of trying to attain throughout a whole track yeah. and keep it interesting even if it's very repetitive it has little points of interest. Yeah. Everything has a purpose, it seems, in the bicep world. Every single element has to have a purpose. Otherwise, you get rid of it. Yeah. I think the thing is, like, whilst the blog was very heavily um, Halo and Disco, our first real dance music-orientated um, education was going to shine and listening to a lot of hard techno. And for those the kind of final two years at school we were going out to see like Dave Clark and Underground Resistance every weekend we were really blessed to have an amazing techno night in Belfast and uh, that gave us that real we love that idea of kind of repetition and how through repetition things kind of can either feel stronger or you can get deeper into something you know what I mean and I think sometimes when you move around too much that can get lost 
Yeah. But that's where we kind of try and get more into the details of if, we, if we're going to have something very simple, try and just have the slightest subtle variations in terms of how we do them. Um, and then, so here's the chords for apricots. So this is kind of the final. I think it's like a mixture of four different synthesizers in the end. We yeah. couldn't choose. And you know, when you start turning one on, on and off, it's just, yeah. it just sounds worse. So I think it's a mix of- The Juno and the Waldorf and the Andromeda, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But this is all together in a group. And then this is just triggered off a drum. And yeah, it's processed with eventide effects. I think there's a couple of different ones going on on it. And is that effect achieved by mixing that sudden surge? That's uh, opening up the release of the gate. So. Um, right. We have all the chords being sent through um, to a gate and that's us changing the release on the gate. So what you're hearing now is actually the recording of the chords almost in their fullness. And then by yeah. processing them, we suck them back into the gate and, and, and pull it, just changing the release and the attack. Yeah, and trying to do it as live as possible. So there's always there's, there's lots of stuff happening, even if it's subtly the attack yeah. changing, the reverb slightly changing, the pitching slightly changing on the reverb there's like lots of little elements and yeah. details that but it's very simple and it's, yeah, it's, it's idea it's a big set of chords into a group and then we just have it being triggered um in fact it's, it's a filter it's not a gate in this one um and then when you have this all running through a reverb and a delay that kind of clouds up the obviousness that it's something's opening and closing and it kind of just feels a lot more fluid yeah we try this quite a lot and then doesn't always work as nicely it doesn't loom yeah. as well but it's great because it creates the feel that this is being played live every yeah. time you hear it you know anytime we do this particular way we will very much um that'll be a take it's good like when listening back even to this just the main chords is that example of like we knew when we were writing the album if we have something like this like a core then if we play this in a live arena we can play any drums over the top of it and it should work essentially because yeah. and we've spent yeah. enough time processing and making these sound nice on their own that we're happy yeah and then with that earlier demo i'll just i'll throw it back the drums were a lot more complicated and there was a lot going on here and um, with frosty the 909 and we we definitely found when we got the vocals working with the chords and the string the track felt very cluttered it was just way too much fat on it and that's what led to the final kick and drums which was just very simple and basic and we, we are going to develop a version that's going to be a more of a kind of techno focused track with much bigger percussion but i think for the album version we really wanted to keep it really simple and just in a track that we could kind of hear all the elements easily yeah but i think um, even if we flick onto the finalized track on it you can hear like there's lots of um modular added to it afterwards we've added i think like 10 layers of uh, little bleeps and blobs that kind of work as um, percussive elements but they're so lowly mixed in the track 
and it's, it's more the case of they're panned and through like lots of modular effects it, generally the make noise stuff a lot of people wouldn't even notice them but it's um yeah we spent quite a lot of time just making them light and not interfere with this kick clap because we really wanted to have that as the anchor point so matt's going to stick on the this is the finalized track and we, the drums don't actually come in until yeah like three minutes in really to hear how all these elements have been built up and developed and then brought together and then analysed and taken apart again and then brought back together to create the final result. I mean, it's, it's always a really nice feeling for us whenever there's many days that we feel there's something there and you know you've got these chords and you know, but it, you just, there's days that just, we're not communicating what we want. Like, it's a very strange thing with like instrumental electronic music because it's, Obviously, if you're writing lyrics, you can say, well, this is what I'm trying to communicate and that you communicate through your lyrics. But with instrumental music, especially as like a duo, like, how do you put your finger on what you're trying to say? Do you know, it's very hard. Like, oh, well, tell us what you're trying to say with this track. But there, over time, it sort of forms in your head and you, you, it becomes something that we both kind of eventually have to together agree on. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And yeah, it's like a kind of one of those things where you just kind of sometimes know it's done when it's done and here you can hear all the little tiny bits of percussion are very light we wanted to keep the drum programming a little lighter across this album because i think the last one again was quite club focused and this one we felt a bit more comfortable in dialing things down a bit and it being a bit less upfront. And that's because you know you can switch it up for the club yeah. as and when you need to, no, I think it was, um, which is really interesting. Yeah, it was definitely gave us a sense of freedom and calmness, knowing we could make those decisions and they weren't final. I think sometimes you can be second-guess yourself a lot when you feel like, oh, you know, this needs to be bigger, this needs to be louder, or this, you know... You end up in like a halfway zone where it's not quite one or it's not, not quite the other. Yeah. And then that also... It's, it's fine for an EP, but in an album format the mix needs to kind of cohere across the whole album and especially when it, when we came to master it you kind of have to have them all at the same level and when you start trying to make something for the purpose of a club and then the other tracks for the purpose of listening at home it's it, they don't cohere in the same way and then you end up spending a lot of time trying to get the mix correct and yeah. but by f making that decision quite early on we freed ourselves up does this mean that um you will be recording live sets and releasing those or, or recording versions of these songs as you would perform them live yeah definitely i think hopefully when gigs come back we want them to kind of um, grow essentially in the live set keep adding little bits taking little bits out and see how they develop over the space of a couple of years because I, I don't think they 
they should essentially be different every time we play them because the different elements, the different crowds and how we perform them. So it's weird in the States because we would have normally played them out for six months and we've mm. no a better idea of what the kind of sound's going to be. And at this stage, we've only done two live streaming shows and it's like they're very much in an early phase of the, what we said, like the harder, more clubby development yeah, of them. Quite be- I mean, we spent the last three months rewriting the album for the next stream and it's kind of weird it's like it's a bit we really wanted to only debut this music to a live audience and obviously 2020 and and pandemics completely changed that but we did feel that it was necessary to have those other elements in the next stream so that people could actually see the bigger picture that we were trying to do these two things at once you know it didn't want to feel because i think the decisions to cut anything that was kind of clubby from the album will obviously there'll be certain people that will probably feel like it's missing what they particularly like about us so we've we've really tried to get on with them writing the new versions but they have to be informed by the crowd over a couple of years like i think the whole point of what we wanted is that it becomes a, not a studio idea it's a live idea and it has to be informed by kind of the crowd so it's something that when i think um after maybe a year of touring it we'll maybe think about penning them down somewhere but at the minute the whole idea is that these are meant to be kind of fluid. Yeah, I think the idea of doing yeah. the live streams has kind of rushed that in our heads, but we're happy that it yeah. actually has came to fruition and we're happy with them, which yeah. is, um, yeah, we've kind of achieved what we kind of set out to in the in the first place. Fascinating stuff. Um, we're going to take a break, I think, and then we'll come back to look at Lido as the next song. Now we're going to look at one more song from the new album by Bicep Isles. This one is Lido, and that conjures up certain things <laughs> in my mind when I think of a Lido or a Lido for some people. Um, are you keen swimmers? I don't think it's the swimming element of it, but it's the when we would decide track names, we always try and envisage a place or an idea of what we envisage the track was made for, or where we listen to, or what ideas that conjures up ourselves. And whilst well, just... we don't swim every week going to the Lido in London Fields like six in the morning there's like a sense of complete calm and I think that was definitely an image that sort of that's sort of like David Hockney-esque kind of just it's like fuzzy but serenity but yeah. even like the the mist coming off the water yeah and especially like even the difference in like winter when you go there yeah and it's dark yeah and it's not just the sunshine it's also the dark element it has yeah. two sides to it yeah usually they'll always be um even though track names seem quite ambiguous and we try to leave them ambiguous because I think it also plays into the idea that people can kind of make their own idea. Uh, Lido was definitely um, something that we had like a strong image in our head um, when we were making it, this one. And what about the album title, Isles? What does that refer to? That's um, So we're kind of at the halfway point in our life where we've spent equal amounts of time in Belfast growing up and equal time in London. I mean, there couldn't be diff- more more polar opposite places northern ireland's very conservative but it has a very tight sense of like underground community for us growing up in northern ireland there um and going to like underground music shows if that felt a real escape from daily life particularly there and the kind of the music that was popular for us was very in your face it was aggressive it was kind of a lot of hard techno the big it was it was euphoric euphoric and it was very much for the throat it wasn't deep 
And it was the nature as well of clubbing experience there. It was like it was 11 o'clock till 3 o'clock in the morning. It was a, it's a confined sense of time. Yeah. You knew it was only five hours, so everyone gave it yeah. the full effort. There was a lot of time. You, there was no warm-up set. Yeah. Um, and that was always a famous thing that we, like fast forward five years later, when we started DJ back in Belfast and we would book club nights and we'd also have friends um, from around Europe that would come and they'd be like, oh, I'm playing Shine next week. I was like, oh, I'm playing the warm-up. How should I play? And I was like, oh, there is no warm-up in Belfast. Because we the, the licensing laws, you have to shut at three in the morning. I mean, you could get away of playing a few deep tunes to half ten and then really you'll be captivated by the crowd. It just goes up and up and up. So, um, But that was that intensity from Northern Ireland. And then moving to London, this explosion of all these different cultures and all these you know, different styles of music that we'd never been exposed to. But equal to that, there was the kind of, there was the deepness and the history and all the influences, kind of, you know, everything from kind of garage and dub and reggae and all these different... So like super deep house. Like I yeah. remember going to nights yeah. with Theo Parrish and he'd be playing for eight hours. And yeah. for me, growing up at China, I was like, what, someone's playing for eight hours? And then yeah. I'd go to the night, it'd start off with hip hop, but like it would be a deep dive into his collection of like underground gems. That yeah. Not not playing for the crowd, it was almost like he's showing you his music collection yeah. to the crowd. And that kind of idea was a very different... Um, Complete, like it was didn't exist yeah people go to the clubs by themselves in london and they would sit and they would dance i would i would actually go to class with people myself and just go and dance yeah and it's just and a you go four in the afternoon to fabric sometimes yeah. and you know it was all this and we came up with the name isles when we'd finished the album and it became quite apparent that we can really see the very different influences that we've had and a lot of the parts of our of our sound or our album come from those influences of northern ireland definitely that sort of i mean melancholic euphoric like that's a very irish we feel quite an irish sort of sound or emotion and the um a lot of the like drum programming and, and the sampling and stuff definitely is much more influenced by our time in london so it just felt like a, a, a kind of the right name for us having yeah. kind of a split identity really across two places and talking of lido um it's interesting because you described in terms of the imagery that you had when you chose that title the swimming pool before people have really you know mashed up the water and and you know the start of the day and yeah. it's interesting because one of the first words i wrote down after listening to the song was calm you know, yeah it has a tremendous calm to it it serves as a purpose in the album um, as like a calm moment but um, we really wanted this to be a track in its own right and be quite introspective like I'm, I'm a massive fan of just two note chords like Aphex Twin, Stone and Focus. It's just two notes over a space of like eight minutes, but it can still captivate you. This one was like three core notes to it. And um, yeah, it was just trying to get that loopy, introspective kind of uh, meditative vibe across essentially. Yeah. Yeah. It's very hypnotic. This one as well. It's like when we look back into the early demo process, we tried to experiment or focus on one synth a day. And this one was like a, one of the first experiments we did with granular synthesis. And we've got a couple for the modular, but um, this was like a VST one or an Ableton device that we used that basically just we resampled the piano note and then fed it in through a granular process. And it ends up just um, manipulating it. And every single time it's played, it's played slightly different. The pitch is moving. There's LFOs on it. There's different lengths. And it is very chaotic and sometimes it double backs on itself and it plays twice, sometimes it plays three times. So yeah, it was, a, it was quite a hard track to put together because you're battling with something in your head which you know is um, random 
but the core of the idea was the three notes that um, tickle below and yeah bring it together really yeah and so were they the very start of this song then um yeah the pads were it was like the, it, going back to it again it was we start pretty much everything went off with the chord element and the musicality and we knew that those two chords held up on their own and that we could actually just play through and do a couple of things over the top and it wouldn't actually essentially differ too much from the original idea of the chords but yeah i'm trying to think what the early versions of it we had of yeah, it so i'll play one here It ended up being quite a few layers of that piano in through the granular because it was when you try and have the chaotic randomness across them all, it becomes even more frantic. Yeah, I think it was about eight or nine layers of that piano. Some going through granular and some that were just anchored on their own. So what's this version we're hearing now? Is this the this very is first This very, very, very early demo. Where we experimented having a kick and clap and when you put the kick and clap in, you, it becomes so obvious that those um, yeah. the clanging elements of the pianos, and you also you lose that meditative quality because it's not deep at all, is it? It's, it's like it's like it, you don't concentrate on anything; you just concentrate on the, the rhythm, yeah, or how chaotic it is, and yeah. it's like it's almost distracting. Yeah. It was also it's a weird vocal sample for us because we'd never normally choose something like that and we were experimenting with like lots of different style vocals yeah and this is very much like you know what we grew up with you know like the, the obvious like church kind of like song I know, uh, gregorian monks playing in my house all the time growing up in ireland <laughs> <laughs> so that um the vocals i think might have been an early an early idea but we weren't sure on whether we'd keep it or not, so we we sent this one out to some vocalists. So here's um here's a version with Anna Molina um sang over. So yeah, getting back to that choral style again, when we, that was kind of similar across the briefs for all the tracks we yeah. sent out. It was yeah. that was like kind of the overarching vibe. So that was her response, but you, you yeah, chose that was her to response to the chords. like meditative in a very different way than the mm. when you have the pianos involved yeah it's, it, and again it's that thing of that vocal's great but I, for us there was just it didn't feel right for the song it was almost like a double whammy of two things trying to do the same thing the chords had already achieved that kind of meditative deep idea that we wanted we had the piano and then the vocal for us was sort of fighting with the chord for dominance in terms of what it was they were trying to say so that was um We'll get onto the track that that developed into um, in a bit, but that with some of the ideas from Atlas combined together to create another track for the album. And then <laughs> this was us. 
it's labeled as Kenny G mix, but it's not actually Kenny G. And I think this was, I don't know, not a, not a good day sampling. Um, so some saxophone just. We didn't actually sample Kenny G for that, but um, yeah, I, I can't remember where that sample came from. If it is a sample, it sounds like it probably is. Yeah, but we were just trying to find those other elements that sort of built upon the piano and the chords, and this was another idea of trying to get that you know kind of third element in there. And I think at that stage we kind of had experimented with doing some drums, trying to make it more, seeing in what direction we'd go in, and just got to the stage where the simplicity that we had at the very, very, very first demo was kind of still felt like the best. Well, it, it was the closest to what we kind of both felt it should be. And then I'll just play the final one here. One of the things about the mixing on it, because it was so simple and with the granular, um, there was like eight layers of the piano. Some of them were, I think two or three were going through the granular and the granular basically makes them shoot, flicks through the sample at, at kind of random speeds and you kind of just have to harvest it and you have to take a recording. And sometimes that we would have recordings that just sound awful and you had to keep running it through the granule until you kind of got a rhythm that worked. And uh, it, I remember we spent a crazy amount of time on this for how it actually sounds in the end. Um, Are we talking days? Oh, uh, no, quite a few weeks, but not in one go, oh, wow. but, but we're coming back to it over and over and over again. And then you start over listening to yeah. the piano noise and you're like, is that one glitching or is that one out of time? And then... Because they happen, there's a really quite a random element. If you listen just to the pianos, they, they flicker on and off and... mixed the random out of time parts of the piano quite low in some of the initial mixes it was a, it was a lot louder and it was too jarring you know whereas i think um we're happy with the final balance there's enough going on where it's really only a few piano notes and two chords but it kind of has enough little bits of hidden interest to kind of carry on Male voice choir, those Gregorian monks that hung out at your house. Um, where's that from then? Uh, that's, I think it's Oxford Choir. Right. Yeah, it was from an Oxford Choir CD. I mean, it's something that we've um, made a point over like the past 10 years, but really the past five, that when you start to become allowing samples to be used in your music, it suddenly opens your ears to like a whole new realm of kind of possibilities in terms of hearing music. You hear music totally differently. Like the songs you love as a complete song, and then the songs that you hear a little bit that you love and you don't like the rest. And it's the same like with the Italo disco that we were always like chopping up and editing. There's just little bits that you hear and you want to cut up and repeat. And uh, it's definitely something that with kind of digesting music now, we kind of always hear is like, oh, there's just like an emotional quality to that little bit of that track, but maybe the rest of it doesn't appeal to me and so it's been something over the last five years we've really tried to like just anything we hear that is interesting we just 
have a big folder on our desktop of just different samples and sort of different CDs. Yeah, so kind of constantly accumulating these possibilities, really. Yeah. And uh, I mean, one of the great things about it is the way that it's so distant. You know, the way that you've incorporated it into the track is so distant and otherworldly. And there was there was a lot. It strangely took a lot of time this track just because of getting those elements right. Like originally, the vocal was a lot more present, and it was like, oh, is, is this does this sound like Enigma in twenty twenty? Do you know what I mean? It was like <laughs> it was such a balance of kind of getting. I think like the tracks that we like, I really love like um when the vocals are mixed so distantly, like Cocktoo Twins and Slow Dive. Yeah, it's like drenching them in reverb and not actually understanding what is being said, but you kind of still sing along to them. And I kind of like that element, and we try and bring that into when we use trying to use um, samples and uh, vocals and tracks, and it's a really hard balance to kind of make it still be there but not be too distant in the background. But yeah, yeah, we had a question with regard to reverb, and you know they were complimenting you on your use of reverb and how you use it so well. But do you have any tips in terms of it's, um, of how you approach it? It's like the this album we were very much aware of giving it room and um I think when you start out and we definitely were guilty of it is when you're making stuff for club is you mix hats quite high and that's the area where your reverb's essentially meant to live and yeah. especially if you start um, exploring like expensive reverbs and when you start comparing them to like um the ones maybe in like the stock plugins in DAWs that you kind of start realizing that you need to hear the pitch shifting and the the details within them and then if you've got hats in that region or any kind of things that might take away from the reverb then it doesn't sound as nice like Nils Frim is a really good one to listen to because his music is quite delicate and you can hear the reverbs and the yeah. tails and stuff on them we called the air and it's the kind of like it's the little glitter that sits on the top of the track and we was something we've really got into a lot more trying to kind of give it its own space but like, I mean, there's some amazing reverbs that you can get. I mean, a plugin that we use all the time, just as a like set and forget, is um, Valhalla. Everything by Valhalla is just incredible. Valhalla is really great for if you're mixing and you just need to do wee tweaks and wee bits of sculpting. We do have quite a lot of outboard reverbs and they have a lot more character, the springs and our lexicon and stuff, but and they're almost an instrument in themselves. The Valhalla stuff's very sort of um, transparent and you can... I think one of the things about reverb is it's important to kind of learn what the reverb's doing, learn about the time, the mix, understanding about, you know, EQing the reverb, removing the bottom end if you're adding to hats or or if you leave the bottom end in, understanding what it's going to do to the mix. Yeah, it's 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 an, an area where we absolutely love and it's yeah. even an area where we haven't really explored fully because you can uh, dedicate a whole album to exploring the the differences in reverb and um when you that's the other thing as well when we talked about um making stuff for the live show or versus um, studio listening albums it's you kind of have to compromise in these things because essentially they all add up to how differently the tracks are mixed yeah um, like if you're making something club focused you have to be a lot more reserved with the reverb usually because it does take up quite a lot of space if you want it to come through i think it's when you're like learning it's best to kind of use less reverb and then just pick specific elements you want reverb on yeah like it's t- so tempting just to put like a, a new reverb on every channel and then and by the end of it, it just becomes a blur. Whereas if you just have one send, for instance, and then you mix two one send, you can get a way more coherent track. Like I kind of always think of like old Beach Boys tracks and them recording all the drums, the vocals and everything in the same room. And you can hear claps from the other side of the room and things like that. It's like making it feel like you're in the same place. It's like it's too easy with like plugins and computers and DAWs to kind of just overcook everything that makes it so unrealistic when you're 
all you're trying to do is achieve something in like a space i think it's like that the thing is like using a reverb on a channel on top of an instrument or on top of vocal is being used really as an as an effect to color the sound or or to make it more distant but using a reverb as a send is more actually what reverbs were intended to which is to replicate the sound of a room and you know to give a feeling of space in the track as a whole and i think definitely we try and get the balance between using it in different ways and kind of understanding what you want to get from the reverb is important it's, it can't just be oh i want to sound airy and dreamy it's like do you want do you want to feel like it's there but it's got space around it or do you want to feel like it's actually really distant and it's far away down a corridor and i think um it can be like intimidating especially when you like open up a door and have all of these um you know audio effects and you're like wow there's like 50 or 60 here and really though like i think one of the most important ones is just obviously learning eq and compression to get your levels and sound right but um just picking a couple of reverbs and really learning them quite inside out and the valhalla ones are great for that because they're you know they're they're not preset orientated they're hands-on you have to learn what each dial means I think one of the big issues as well is with like new synths and stuff with plug-in reverbs and stuff built into the synths is like you don't really consider it. You just consider that sound that's coming out of yeah. the synth. And quite a lot of times we'll actually turn off the reverb yeah. that's built into a synth because that's just added as a kind of thing to kind of, in my head, it's like to make it sit in a live performance or yeah. as like a standalone thing. It's not really studio reverby yeah. and it's not considered for the track that you're making. And I mean, it's amazing to have them on synths if you know what you're doing, but there's definitely like a little gap where people just need to learn one reverb and inside out and from from that there you can apply that to every synth every um, reverb as well yeah yeah it's interesting isn't it because in effect instead of learning a musical instrument you're learning the studio technology um like a musical instrument yeah because for a musician to be um exceptional on, on an instrument they have to put in many hours and many years of practice and experimentation and you have to do the same with the studio kit in order to create the kind of moving music that Bicep do. You know, that is the result of of years of exploration. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny that the, we regularly listen back to old music um, that we've made. We're not regularly, but anytime we have heard it back, it's really funny being able to spot, we're like, oh my, listen to that mistake. Oh my God, can you hear that? And like, it's it's funny and it's, it's like humbling and it's like, you, you kind of, we accept it as just part of the process of learning and kind of and learning I mean, public, but it is funny though. Like we try to be quite self-critical and it's, it's funny. I mean, there's so many mistakes uh, in like the first album with little tweaks that we've kind of, things that we've learned since. And we're like, oh, I can't believe I left that in there or why is that on? Or But even at that, it's like, even like if you listen to Sundial, it's like that's off the jupiter through a couple of effects and it's um the arpeggiator is broken on it and it's not triggering perfectly from the 808 but that adds like an amazing element to it so you've got this thing where if mistakes are good yeah everything yeah. was perfect it wouldn't really have created yeah. what you wanted or what ended up being what it was so we were going to talk about one more song uh, briefly um that you alluded to that has the animalina vocal that you played us um, but before that I thought I'd ask uh, a couple of the questions that we normally ask um, everybody who comes on tape notes one is well I mean this is a variation on, on one of our standard questions but this one has been uh, changed by Quilliam Music who says that if there was a studio fire and you could only grab one piece of kit what would it be? Studio fire probably Decker's Decker's oh it's because mm. Decker's dreams what I would want the most but then it is replaceable, and what is trying to give something that's not replaceable? I mean, I would get one arm, I'd have the 808, one arm, I'd have the Deckers. 
I think it's because I, I know that... Maybe I'm, the modular, because that takes such a pain to replace. Oh, yeah, actually just... Because that was, that was something that we built, built it up over about five years, but also sold off stuff, got new stuff. I don't ever think we actually wrote down everything we've got for it. So it's like, it'd be one of those ones that'd be a real headache to replace. I think modulars, it's great because it's quite personal. Like you really just build your own synth essentially through different parts. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd have to rescue that. What are the habits, routines that have been in your life that have helped you in your career as a musician and producer? I mean, it was interesting earlier on and you were saying how, you know, working as as a designer had a, a certain effect in terms of, you know what the music represented to you because of you know having to to work towards other people's ideas you know do you think that there have been other impacts in your in your life experience or the routines that you've built up training potentially um, that have helped i think we're quite disciplined i think that's a, a good thing that we can try and stick to a routine and then also we're never really focusing always on achieving something like perfect we're always just quite open to experimentation and not never really hard on ourselves in a sense that there's always tomorrow essentially is you know with um, music and um, this this is always meant to be fun it's always meant to be enjoyable and when it becomes like you make it feel like a job then something's wrong along the line we try and avoid deadlines but when we're writing i mean even all all, all this year when apart from when it's been lockdown um we come to the studio 10 to 6 every day and often something is regimented that, that doesn't line up perfectly with trying to be creative but we, by coming in every day and having that structure in place, on those days that things aren't working, we will just pick up a synth that we'd never normally use and just play around with it for a bit and have three hour gap of just not doing anything apart from just playing around with something and learning a bit more or just tidying up an area of the studio that's, that's kind of got chaotic. And But trying to stay inside that sort of framework of you get up and you come here at 10 every day and we stay for you know a solid eight hours. And I think... By just giving us that framework, it, it's definitely made us more productive in the long run. Because I think if you picked and choose the days you're feeling good and the days you're not feeling good and the day we chose meet up, you know, weeks turn into months, turn into years. And I think by just trying to get 30, 40 hours here a week has been and treat it like a job. It's also quite good for your mental health because it gives you a structure that, you know, come six o'clock at night, the day's over. You have dinner and you can go out for a nice walk or go out to the pub and you feel that the day's got structured. And I think it's definitely quite easy in a, you know, self-employed creative job that without that structure, things can be too fluid and it can be too, you know, oh, I'm really hungover today. I'm, like we, even if we've been out the night before, if we've agreed to come in, we will really try and get in here. We might leave at midday, but we usually try and really get in. Like it's, it's yeah, there's days when you like um, crave like a nine to five of simplicity of just like a, a routine uh, especially when you're on tour you're like oh, i wish i could just go and meet my mates at the end of the day at the pub and and we try and strive for like a structure that can attain that but also we're really grateful that we're able to do yeah. what we do as a daytime job and being able to have had the experience of working for years i worked in retail for years and we've had jobs both of us since yeah, we're like 15. restaurants since i was 15 as well so we've, we've worked in that kind of environment and we're like that kind of gives us the motivation to work equally as hard and trying to achieve something that we can love and do as a job and yeah i think using those as touchstones to kind of always look back on and remember our time i remember sat in an office nine to five just thinking about making music when i was finishing yeah um, and yeah just being able to do that it's always this definitely helped us yeah interesting and as uh musicians and producers who are clearly constantly learning all the time you know you, you clearly think that that's exactly what you should be doing do you have any advice for any aspiring 
musicians or producers? I mean, I think be authentic. Strive to be authentic. I think it's impossible at the beginning to define your own path. It's like we've spent years sort of replicating stuff that we thought was good before we kind of got to the point we had a sign. But it was definitely became something we strive for is try and be authentic to us, try and get... And even if it's not successful, it's about being authentic because then it's something that you own and it's something you can look back on as yours as opposed to something where, oh yeah, I did really well for three years, but I also know deep down I was sort of doing what everyone else wanted. And it, I think there'll always be people who can do it better if you're attempting to, to replicate someone else. So I think being authentic is really important. And also, like, don't fall out of love with what you do. It's very easy when you try and do the crossover between a stable job and a very unstable job, like working in music, especially for the first couple of years, it's very easy to get sucked into trying to pay the bills and, and chase the money. And, and and the problem with that is that it's a very easy way to fall out of love. And it's something that, like, you know, anybody that works um, in a creative job, um, well, it's a struggle because there will always be choices that one choice might be easier and better paid, but you know deep down it's not the right choice. And I think it's striving to always do what you love and stay in love with it will give you a longevity where you still feel fresh at, you know, 10 years in coming in and doing what you do. Um, I mean, there's so many ways to go about that. We kept our, our normal jobs for quite a few years in the process of trying to take this very seriously. And, and we're working, finishing work at six, seven o'clock at night and then doing another four hours on music. And that transition period prepped us to the point where we did quit our jobs. We were, far enough along that we felt it wasn't this huge abyss we were jumping into it felt like whilst it was very it felt sketchy for a good few years it still felt like there was something that we could kind of strive towards and i think um just getting the timing right before jumping in will give you more opportunity to kind of carry on doing what you love and not feel you know under pressure to kind of concede um one thing i'd say to like aspiring and young musicians is like anyone that i know who's old and has succeeded in music has put in the hours and works very very hard on the outside it might look like you're just touring and doing like gigs here and there but i think a lot of successful artists and the ones that have stent the test of time have put in the hours and you develop a work ethic where you you just work very hard and uh, i think that should be at the forefront of people's minds when they're if they want to work in this it's the same as like my friends who are like medics is they always wanted to be doctors and they were willing to put in the hours and the effort because they really enjoyed it and really wanted to do it. It's like you need if you're going to choose it as a career, you need to love it and you want to put in the hours. And it's not work. It's like you're just learning all the time and enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, that's such good advice. Um, we always like to end with another piece of music from an album. And I thought we'd look at the song that you said resulted from the Animalina contribution. So, so she... Am I right? Yeah, so it's, it's actually Zosia that did ah. a demo for Atlas. It's also Rosina that did a demo for Atlas. And it's Anna Molina that did a demo for uh, Lido. And we pitched, I uh, can't remember the exact key of its track, but one of the samples was kind of um, pitched to sit in line with the others. And then we this is this this is the final track that we got. And um, you can kind of hear uh, the shrilling um, strings and the different vocals. So in effect, three different contributions. Three, th three contributions came together to create this. And which track is this? Uh, it's called Melly, and it's one of the B-sides to the album. 
Right. And it will be something that we're going to develop into a, like a, a bigger techno tune, but this is the ambient version. So nothing goes to waste in the world of bicep. We try not to. There's a lot of waste. It's <laughs> like <laughs> so, green energy music. <laughs> It's been such a pleasure talking to you, Matt and Andy. Thank you so much. Thank you for so taking much for time. taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, thank you very much. It was really interesting, really exciting, and and it's one of those things. I think. I mean, maybe this has helped lead you into music, but the world of electronic music seems like such a mysterious world at times to the listener and the fan. You know, you create such wonders, and we get drawn in, but it's really hard to unpick yeah. what it all is. And that's the great thing about being able to talk to you and have you un unravel that just a little bit and just let us into the world. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. To ask a question on a future episode or find out who's coming up, head to our socials and on Instagram you can see pictures from the recording sessions for each episode of Tape Notes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.